Author Jay Strack writes of an NBA basketball game he attended that ended rather strangely. As a matter of fact, here's a clip of the final 10 seconds of the game. Oh my. Dallas Mavericks point guard Derek Harper dribbled the final seconds off the clock. He thought his team was ahead when the game was actually tied. Dallas could have used the time to hoist a final shot and win the game. Instead, they ended up losing in overtime. And Strack wrote afterwards, he wrote these words, Dribble, 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 go the seconds, the minutes, the hours, the days, the years of our lives. How often have you dribbled away valuable seconds that you could have used to win the game? You could have won the prize of knowing Christ, won a reward for serving God, won lost souls for our Lord Jesus. Instead, we dribbled away the precious seconds. It was like we had time to waste rather than a game to win. Well, here Paul's goal in chapters 5 and 6 is to help us avoid that mistake. He sets our sights on eternity and he focuses us on the judgment seat of Christ. Paul encourages those of us who believe not to waste a single second. And so he begins in verse 1. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. During Paul's stay in Corinth, he made tents. He was a tent maker by trade. And here he compares our human body to a tent. Both are temporary dwellings. Both are rather fragile and flimsy. This earthly house was made to one day fold. Now, I know a lot of you like to camp, but not me. I like to camp in a nice hotel, okay? My problem isn't sleeping under the stars. It's not enjoying the outdoors. I just hate all the effort that goes into camping. I mean, you pack up, and then you set up, and by the time you got everything set up, then you got to pack up again, and you got to go back home. Camping is a hassle, and so are these bodies that we dwell in. Think of the time and the energy and money you waste sustaining your body. For starters, I have to refuel my body three times a day. I mean, my car will run on a whole tank of gas all week long. You also have to park your body every night for a few hours. A body requires frequent oil changes. Even a nice wash and wax every day. And to top it all off, you're constantly driving into the mechanic for repairs. And what upsets me most about my body is I have to drag it around with me everywhere I go. See, my body is like a tent. A lot of time and effort and energy and money goes into its upkeep. Bodies are a hassle. And Paul says that one day we are going to swap these temporary, troublesome tents 
for more permanent structures. Christians have been promised a building from God. We know when Jesus returns for his church, we'll receive new eternal housing. A body made from elements that are not subject to decay or to deterioration. Your heavenly body won't have to be refueled, arrested, or repaired. You'll spend all of your efforts worshiping Jesus. One day, our spirit will get the keys to hassle-free housing. We'll be given heavenly, glorified bodies. Once there was a family, they had a ritual they conducted whenever one of the children's pet goldfish died. Mom, dad, brother, sister, they would all gather around the commode. The boys would hold the fish over the toilet, say a prayer, and then flush it to goldfish heaven. On one such solemn occasion, little sister asked mom if grandpa, who died a few years earlier, was also in heaven. The mom said confidently, yes, honey, grandpa is in heaven. That's when one of the boys asked, who flushed grandpa? Hey, when we die, we're going to flush these bodies and ultimately receive a building from God. Aren't you glad? A spiritual, eternal home. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. Now realize, Greek philosophy viewed the body as an evil thing, as totally and completely unredeemable. Philosopher Epictetus said, described himself as a poor soul burdened with a corpse. The Roman Seneca called himself a slave of the body. The Greek hope for the afterlife was to be free from the body, to just be a disembodied spirit, just sort of floating out there somewhere. But Paul tells us that God has a greater plan for us. He's going to transform our mortal bodies into eternal bodies, glorified bodies, that one day these bodies will be, re- will be resurrected. He says, For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. God's redemption will not be complete until all traces of sin have been blotted out, including sin's effect on our body. You know, if you were in a car wreck and all the insurance paid for was the repair to the engine, you'd be disappointed. I mean, we need some body work done here. Well, God is not only a mechanic, he has a body shop. And he's not only working under our hood, which he is. He's purifying us and sanctifying us and energizing us. But he also has designs for our wrecked bodies. One day we're going to receive an eternal house from God. And then Paul says in verse 5, Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee, that is, as a down payment. The spiritual life that we receive is now earnest money for the spiritual body that will one day be given. The presence of God's Spirit in us means there's more to come for us. And so we are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Paul groans. Paul longs for his eternal body. And so do I. 
Imagine skin that doesn't sag, muscles that don't ache or tire, cells that don't get sick. Man, the older I get, the more I groan for a bod from God. But until then, I'm coping with a flimsy and a failing tent. And this is why Paul says, we walk by faith, not by sight. In a troublesome now, we hold on to his promises by faith. And here is Paul's faith. We are confident, yes, well-pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. There are two passages, 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4, that teach us that we as believers will wait until the end of the age in Christ's return, an event known as the rapture, to receive our eternal bodies. And yet the moment that a spirit, the spirit of a believer, departs from his earthly tent, he immediately finds himself in the presence of the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The notion of soul sleep, that the soul hibernates until the resurrection, is unbiblical. The moment we die, our spirit is with the Savior. That means your loved ones right now who are in Jesus are with Him right now. And then he says in verse 9, Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, the term Paul uses here, judgment seat, is a translation of the Greek word bima. The bima seat was the platform in Greek towns where officials made their important pronouncements. It was from the bima seat that rewards were handed out, that decisions were handed down. And one day, every believer is going to stand before the bima seat of Christ for the same purposes. Now, some people confuse the great white throne of judgment with the judgment seat of Christ. Revelation 20 speaks of the white throne where the lost will be judged and condemned and thrown into the lake of fire. It's for unbelievers, whereas the Bema seat is for us who are Christians. Our place in heaven is secured by the blood of Jesus, but our service for the Lord will be tried to see what rewards we'll receive. In other words, our motives will be judged. Reminds me of the widow who was furious over the fact that her husband had bequeathed all his money to his secretary. I mean, his own wife had been cut out of the will. She rushed to the graveyard to have the inscription on his tombstone changed. She arrived too late. She sure didn't want to spend her own money on a new tombstone, not on that turkey. And so she had the undertaker carve an add-on. Right after rest in peace, she, he chiseled, until we meet again. And each of us will meet again at the Bema seat. Jesus will judge you and I for what we did on earth. Did we serve him with sincerity? Our motives will be measured. He says in verse 11, knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Now, a Christian has peace with God through Jesus. We shouldn't be frightened of God. But we should definitely fear for those who don't know Him. For the last place an unregenerate sinner wants to be is in the presence of a holy God. 
In light of unforgiven sin and guilt, His holiness will be terrifying. He'll, people will quiver in fear. And this is why Paul preached, because he was concerned for those who were lost. He says in verse 11, he said, We persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. Though Paul persuaded men to believe the gospel, he shouldn't question if men believed in him, for he was well known by the Corinthians and by God. The Corinthians were well aware of Paul's integrity. He had lived a year and a half there in Corinth. They were acquainted with his motives. He says, For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but we give you opportunity to boast on our behalf that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. Now you remember, Paul's writing this letter to defend himself. His ministry is under attack by these Corinthians. And Paul's critics had measured an apostle by appearance, by image. They said that a true man of God should look the part, should have some stature and some cloud and some gravitas. But Paul shouldn't have to prove anything to the Corinthians, he says. He says, you know my heart. And according to Paul, this is the real measure of a man of God. Paul wasn't about looking good in the eyes of people. He was all about being good before God. You know, history tells us that Paul was barely five feet tall. He had a hunchback. He had a hooked nose, bow legs. He had these thick eyebrows that ran together across his forehead, looked like a long caterpillar crawling across his forehead. And the eyes... He had these pustuous, bulging eyes. In addition, his body was tattooed with the scars from numerous beatings and stonings. Paul would have never made the cover of GQ magazine, trust me. Even Christianity today. With Paul, it was all about heart, not appearance that mattered. And yet the false teachers in Corinth, they were just the opposite. They took pride in their appearance. They all looked like FCA leaders, big men on campus, muscular, rugged, good-looking jocks. These guys tried hard to be cool. They were the hipsters, tall on appearance but short on substance. In the final analysis, they were more interested in marketing than ministering. They were all hype and no holiness. In contrast, people thought Paul was nuts, and he did little to counter their perceptions. He says, For if we are beside ourselves, or if you think we're crazy, it's for God we're crazy. Or if we're of sound mind, it is for you. In essence, if you think I'm crazy, well, then I'm just crazy for God. And if you think I'm in my right mind and right on, then follow my example. But either way, Paul didn't take a poll before he acted. He was the opposite of politically correct. The only expectations the Apostle Paul lived up to were those of his Lord. He wanted to please God. Paul reveals his master motive in verse 14. He says, For the love of Christ compels us. The reason Paul preached, the reason he served, the reason he endured hardships for Christ was the love he had experienced from Jesus. He knew how much the Lord loved him. And he loved the Lord in return. 
Notice so far here in chapter 5, Paul has mentioned three motivations for serving Jesus. He mentions rewards. He mentions fear. But then he also mentions love. All three are powerful motivations, but without question, the highest and the holiest incentive to serve God is love. It's knowing in your heart of hearts that Jesus loves you and died for you and cares for you and rose for you. This is what captivates and propels a person to serve the Lord. It causes them to go anywhere to do anything for Jesus' sake. Hey, a tank that's full of the love of Christ will never run empty. Paul says, for the love of Christ compels us. Because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. Now here's a truth about our salvation. Sort of hard to get our minds around, but when you do, it opens up all kinds of blessings. We're told here that when Jesus died, spiritually speaking, we died with him. In other words, our sin nature, as Paul would put it, our old man was crucified with Christ. Think of it like this. Think of it like copy and paste. My computer allows me to copy text from one document and then paste it into another. God can also copy and paste. Spiritually, he copies us living here in the 21st century. And then he scrolls back to the 1st century where he pastes us in alongside Jesus on the cross. You now share in what Jesus accomplished. When Jesus died to sin, the old you died with him. Literally. Paul continues, And he died for all that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. In Christ, we died to our old desires. We became brand new people in Christ Jesus. God now gives to every Christian a new identity, a new nature, a new disposition, a new love, a new purpose, a new joy, even a new power. He figures the least that we can do is embrace this new life and live it to the max. And then he says something truly revolutionary in verse 16. He says, therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. This has changed how I view everyone, Paul says, including myself. This is an incredible statement. Understand it and it'll change your life. Now Paul uses Jesus as the example. He says, on earth the disciples knew Jesus as a man. They recognized him physically. They interacted with him tangibly. You know, even today we picture Jesus with human traits. Hopefully you don't view him as an Irish Catholic, like some of the movies envision him, this white guy with red hair and all. Hopefully you view him with Middle Eastern features. That's what he had. He had black hair, he had a Jewish nose, no doubt. The Lord's humanness enabled his disciples to identify Jesus on the street and to follow him. But now that he has ascended into heaven, we relate to Jesus spiritually. In fact, his former appearance is no longer that significant. The fact that he was with us is important theologically, 
But the specifics, his height, his weight, his facial features, his physique, are no longer a relevant issue. This is why God didn't give us a physical depiction or portrait of Jesus. In fact, his omission was very intentional. God is teaching us a new way to view one another. Since we are all new people in Christ, why focus any longer on the outward person? Why not look beneath the surface? As best we can, God wants us to look past each other's bodies and relate to each other spiritually. And the first way to apply this is personally. Why get bummed about your appearance or your body shape when the real you is not the outer but the inner person? It's the person of the heart. Remember, our bodies are just a tent. This is just temporary skin. It cracks and withers. I mean, like a pecan, I am more than the outer shell. The real Sandy is the nut on the inside. (laughs) This is how we should view ourselves. Years ago, supermodel Carol Mallory, she made the comment, everywhere I went, my my figure followed, but I learned I am not my figure. Oh, I've learned this too. I'm so glad I'm not my figure. Your personhood involves more than how pretty you are, or how fit you are, or how smart you are, or how athletic you are. The real person is who you are on the inside. You are what you are spiritually. And here's a way that we men can apply Paul's people principle. When we see a pretty girl, remember, That's not the girl. That's just the shell. The real person is under the wrapping paper. In reality, she may be lonely and sad and vindictive. She may be an ugly person. She's definitely a soul in need of Jesus. Paul's point is that we should learn to see ourselves and other people in terms of who they are spiritually. We're not our weight or our height or our shape. Or our looks, the real you is the spiritual you. Your body is just a pup tent that one day will be traded in on a wonderful mansion. And thus Paul writes triumphantly, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Do you know, do you realize That a Christian is a totally new species of creature that prior to the first century had never before roamed this planet? We are the first humans since Adam's fall not to possess a sin nature. Our old man has been crucified with Christ. We represent a new start for mankind. God has planted in our hearts a love for Him and a love for others. We're capable of what no one before us could have done. We can grow spiritually. We can live victoriously. In Christ, we are the envy of the angels. We are new creations in Christ. And then he says in verse 18, not only are we new creations, we have a ministry. For now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. And and notice here, God didn't need to be reconciled to us We're reconciled to Him. 
You see, God loves us. He's for us. He wants to forgive us. It's mankind who is at war with God. We are the hostiles. And yet Jesus died to make a way for us to return to God. He paid for our penalty. He's gained for us a pardon. And he has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Not only has Jesus united us with God, but he sent us on a mission to bring other people into relationship with God as well. He reconciles us and he makes us ministers of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Now here is, a, is an absolute mind blower. On the cross, God was in Christ dying to save you. Now, God is in you pleading for men to be saved. Paul calls us ambassadors for Christ. We are divine diplomats. We are God's spokespeople on this planet. Like a foreign envoy sent to another country, an ambassador comes to that country in the clothes and language of the culture. He speaks in ways that the locals will hear and understand. And as ambassadors for Christ, we convey the message of heaven in ways that earthly ears can hear and can grasp. Sadly, some churches have lost touch with the truth of heaven. Whereas others forget how to speak in the dialect of earth. This is why a good ambassador needs both. He needs to be relatable to the culture, but he needs to be reliable spiritually. True to the message, but shrewd with his delivery. And Paul adds, verse 21, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Boy, Jesus was the sinless sacrifice. He, he knew no sin. He was the spotless lamb. And yet on the cross, an amazing exchange took place. The full weight of every grimy act done in every slimy place was suddenly thrust on Jesus' sinless shoulders. He was made sin who knew no sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. What an exchange. Jesus took on the responsibility for all that's wrong with fallen humanity so that we could become what's right to a holy God. What a message we have to share with others. Nothing is more deserving than our maximum effort than to communicate God's glorious gospel effectively. You know, as ambassadors, we are in one sense an interpreter. And you know, a good interpreter is, is fluent in two languages. The language that he's hearing, but also the language that he's speaking. And as God's interpreters, again, we need to be faithful, both to the message of Scripture, but also fluent in the language of the culture. We can't err on either side. We have to be good at both. And so he says in chapter 6, We then, as workers together with him, also plead with you 
not to receive the grace of God in vain. Notice we not only work for Jesus, but we work with him. And that's something we should never forget. Paul writes, as workers together with him. And Paul pleads with the Corinthians not to receive the grace of God in vain, for it can happen. Grace can get wasted on an ungrateful or an unrepentant heart. Grace is God's change agent. Access to God's blessings should be taken advantage of, not taken for granted. Don't just receive grace, but grow in the grace that God gives you. For he says, and Paul quotes here, Isaiah 49 verse 8, In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Paul says that now is the day the prophets foretold. Not next week, not tomorrow, but today is the day you can be saved. Keep in mind that salvation is a seasonal product. In one sense, it's like beach toys or like Christmas ornaments or like Valentine's candy. You know, there are only certain times of the year when you can get some products. When some products are in start, stock. If you don't get your Valentine candy in February, man, by the time late April rolls around, you're done. Forget it. And likewise with salvation. Paul says, now is the day of salvation. Now is when it's on the shelf. It might not be there later. When time ends and eternity begins, you'll no longer be able to obtain salvation. Today, though, the shelves are stocked. Today, business is brisk. God even needs help behind the counter. That's why he's recruited you. You know, in the grocery store where I used to work, there was a rule. If customers were stacking up at the checkout registers, even if you were on break or if you were at lunch, you went back to work. We never made a customer wait. And this is why God, why today God is calling all his servants to the registers. We are all ambassadors for Christ. We've got customers at the checkouts. They need the gospel. And when I talk about the day when time ends and eternity begins, understand I'm not just speaking of the day when Jesus returns. Time ends and eternity begins every day for millions of people who die and meet their maker. Right this second, people all over the globe are checking out. And they desperately need Jesus. You know, you hear a lot of talk these days about near-death experiences. Folks supposedly see bright lights in the distance, and they walk down these long corridors and tunnels. Well, I hate to burst your bubble, but that's not what you're going to see when you really die. Near death isn't the same as really dead. You know that. C.S. Lewis describes what you'll see the first moment after you die. There will be God without disguise. Something so overwhelming that it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature. It will be too late then to choose your side That will not be the time for choosing. It will be the time when we discover which side we have really chosen, whether we realized it or not. 
Now this moment is our chance to choose the right side. God is holding back to give us that chance. It won't last forever. We must take it or leave it. That's why today is the day of salvation. Everybody did the checkouts. We got customers. And then he says in verse 3, We give no offense in anything that our ministry may not be blamed. You know, some ministries do more harm than good. They needlessly turn people off to the gospel. They're rude, or they're inauthentic, or they're hypocritical, or they're out of touch. You know, the gospel will offend people by its very nature. You, you don't need to, uh, to offend people yourself. You don't, you don't want to do anything to offend people. The gospel itself is going to offend people. And in the next few verses, Paul begins to speak of his ministry, which parallels the ministries of most pastors. He goes on and he says, But in all things we commend ourselves as ministers of God. Remember, he's trying to defend himself in this letter. You know, a typical church member doesn't really understand or realize the sacrifices and the difficulties that his or her pastor truly faces. The Corinthians didn't realize all that Paul had to endure to bring them the gospel. It's been said, a ministry that costs nothing accomplishes nothing. And in the next few verses, Paul itemizes the price that he had paid to bring to the Corinthians the gospel. He begins with the pressures he had experienced in ministry. He says, in much patience, in tribulations, in needs, in distresses. Boy, I could talk about all of that. How many times as pastors we have to wait? God has made a promise, but we have to wait on it. In needs, in distresses. Then he goes on and he talks about the persecutions of his ministry. In stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, followed by the passions that he's endured in ministry. In labors in sleeplessness, in fastings. At times he's been pushed to the extreme. As well as the godly principles and priorities of his ministry. He's tried to maintain purity and by knowledge and by long-suffering and by kindness. And whenever he ministers, it's by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left. And then Paul mentions a few ministry paradoxes. By honor and dishonor. You know, it's odd how people treat me when they discover I'm a pastor. I mean, some people show instant respect. <laughs> Other people react with instant disdain. You know, it's, it's by honor and dishonor. By evil report and good report. Hey, in today's godless culture, it is impossible to teach God's word without ruffling some feathers. Here's my job. Every week I make somebody mad. It's true. Every sermon is a split decision. To some folks it's a good report, while others they get offended. As deceivers and yet true. Not only do I teach, I'm also called on to lead. Those who like the direction say amen. Those who don't 
question my motives of all things. But every decision a pastor makes is met with controversy. He says, as unknown and yet well known. Everybody thinks they know me, but you may not. I mean, everybody knows I'm Pastor Sandy. But I bet at times you forget I'm Kathy's honey. (laughs) And then I'm dad to eight kids now. And then I'm G-daddy to 11 grandkids. And then I'm even pastor to other pastors. Everybody knows I'm Pastor Sandy, but few people remember I got a life outside of what I do for them. As dying, and behold, we live. We die to pride. We sacrifice for others, even as God fills us with his life. As chastised and yet not killed. (laughs) Did you know God disciplines pastors? I'm not above a spiritual spanking, trust me. And what doesn't kill us will make us better. And then verse 10, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Oh, ministry is so full of highs and lows. Talk about a roller coaster. I I mean, I can get my heart broken by a person I trusted and then seconds later have the joy of leading a man to Christ. Talk about highs and lows. That's why you've got to be persistent. As poor, yet making many rich. Trust me, being a pastor isn't a way to get rich, but it's a wonderful way to enrich others. And that should be the goal of all pastors. And as having nothing and yet possessing all things. A pastor's bank account might hover near empty, but as he serves the Lord, he's laying up treasure in heaven. Well, Paul's discussion of ministry here wasn't about tooting his own horn. No, the Corinthians had questioned him. He wanted them to know that he had endured for their sake. And I know how Paul feels. The toughest times in ministry are when folks criticize what they see while you're making sacrifices that they can't see. Those are the painful times. Several years ago, it's been many years ago now, I, I kind of came under attack from some of the some critics here within our church. And I'll never forget going to my dad for advice. I should have known better, but <laughs> going to my dad for advice was was an experience. And I remember sitting down at the kitchen table with my dad, and I just sort of spilled my guts. And Dad, after all these years, I've still got to prove myself to these people. What gives with that? And I'll never forget my dad's reply. It was spot on. He said, Sandy, in this world, you've got to prove yourself to people every single day. It's true. Thankfully, Paul didn't have to prove himself to Jesus. The Lord accepts us as we are. But he knew he had to prove himself to people. Pastors know that too. Paul continues. Oh, Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. Paul had been candid with them. Verse 12. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. See, the Corinthians had blamed Paul for their problems, but he wasn't the problem. They should look in a mirror, he says. One night I was listening to Dr. Laura, the, you know, the call-in radio show. And this caller was talking about the problems that her parents were having. Were having. When suddenly Dr. Laura, she jumped in and she corrected her. He said, no, these are the problems your parents are creating. 
And then she explained, when a tornado destroys your house, you have a problem. But when you act selfishly and make bad choices, you create a problem. Well, the Corinthians here were creating problems, not having problems. Paul wasn't their problem. They were their own problem. Verse 13, now in return for the same, I speak as to children. You also be open. I've been open with you, he says. Now you be open with me. And then Paul lists a crucial principle. And every young people needs, person in this room needs to pay attention to what I'm about to say. He says, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. The image here is that of a plow pulled by two oxen. The necks of the animals are in a wooden harness or yoke. It causes pain if one oxen doesn't cooperate with the other. You see, the yoke chokes the one who pulls too far ahead, and it pitches down on the one who lags too far behind. The yoke is constructed to force the oxen to work together. Thus, it's easier on the animals if the two are of the same breed. You want to put two of the same breed in one yoke. If you mix a donkey with an ox... Well, then you just ensure friction and frustration for these two animals. Different species have different natures that will pull apart and that will fight one another. And likewise, a believer in Jesus and an unbeliever are two separate breeds with different natures. A believer has been born of God, alive. He or she is alive to the things of God. Whereas that unbeliever, though perhaps a nice person is still dead in their sin and oblivious to God's Spirit. Put these two breeds, these different breeds, in the same yoke, that is, in a marriage or in a business partnership or in a roommate situation or in a serious dating relationship, and it will produce a long-term frustration. They'll be at each other's throats before long. At first, the two parties might work together well, but over time, inevitably, their natures are going to push them in separate directions, and it's going to cause problems. They'll pinch, or they'll choke each other. That yoke will cause pain. Paul asked five rhetorical questions of the person who is unequally yoked with an unbeliever. He says, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? Some person's trying to do what's right and please God. The other person doesn't care what pleases God. They're just following their own whims. I mean, that's going to cause problems. And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Belial means worthless. It was an ancient epithet for Satan. So, I mean, one one person's following the dictates of Christ. The other person's following the inspiration of Satan. Again, it's going to create problems. Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? Hey guys, some things just don't mix. Oil and water, honey and vinegar, drinking and driving, water and electricity, bulldogs and gators. I mean, let's face it, some things don't mix, and that includes believers and unbelievers. Now remember chapter 5, it calls on us to be ambassadors for Christ. Thus we can't withdraw from the world and still be ministers of reconciliation. But neither should we get overly involved 
in the world and thus be vexed by their choices and their actions. See, it's one thing to have contact with the world. It's another thing to be in contract with the world. We can interact, but we step over a lethal line when we get too intertwined and too interconnected. Paul adds one more question in verse 16. And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Notice, we are God's kids. That's why it's often said, if a child of God marries a child of the devil, then the child of God is sure to have trouble with his (laughs) father-in-law. That's more true than you know. I could fill a five-gallon bucket with the tears shed in my office by believers who made the terrible decision to marry an unbeliever. Nothing is as agonizing and complex and as taxing on a Christian married to someone who doesn't share their most basic and heartfelt allegiance to Jesus. Though it's just a conviction. All the, hey, all the teenagers listening, listen up. If you're not married, listen up. Though it's just a conviction, it's pretty hard to argue. You'll never marry an unbeliever if you never date one. Chapter 6, verse 17, quotes Isaiah 52, verse 11. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. In our interactions with people, don't isolate from the world, but neither should you assimilate into the world and buy into its values. We need a healthy balance here. Friendship with sinners, yes, but fellowship with saints more so. Once there was a mother, she was trying to teach this lesson to her sons. She was out in the garden, and she held up her white gloves. And she said, now notice, boys, when I stick these gloves in the dirt, the gloves get dirty, the dirt doesn't get glovey. And this is what we're taught in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 33. Evil company corrupts good habits. Hang out with the wrong people for long, and you'll eventually get hung. We're in the world. But we shouldn't be of this world. And there we have 2 Corinthians chapters 5 and 6. You know, if you're bright and if you're with this now and you're getting smart, what you'll do for next week is read 2 Corinthians chapters 7 and 8. How about that? 